Welcome to Spectrum Policy 101, brought to you by Policy Tracker, which produces a newsletter, research and training courses about spectrum management. Hello, I'm Tim Jenkins with Episode 1, What is Spectrum Management? Well, we're all of us bathed in the electromagnetic spectrum, from light and heat that we can sense, and other waveforms that we can't detect by ourselves, like infrared, ultraviolet, radio, TV transmissions, X-rays and cosmic rays. There's a lot of it out there. From long wavelengths which can travel around the world, to short wavelengths that don't go so far but can carry a lot of information. We mostly talk of these waves of energy in terms of their frequency, how fast they move if you like. But while there's a lot of the spectrum to choose from, it's finite. We can't make any more of it. So we have to decide who gets to use which bit of the spectrum, which frequencies go to which uses. We call that spectrum management. And in this series of four podcasts, we'll discover how it's decided, whether you're allowed faster access to the internet on your mobile phone, or better Wi-Fi reception, or TV in the remotest parts of the world, or radio astronomy, or secret military communications, or to control drones and satellites, the list goes on. It's quite complicated. And it's quite a fight, too, to get hold of Spectrum to do what you want to do. I'm going to need some experts to help me through this. So I'm going to start by talking to Richard Wormsley. He's a government regulator now in the Cayman Islands. But for a long time, he was with LS Telcom, which supplies Spectrum management tools to over 120 countries. Welcome, Richard. Hello, Tim. First of all... Give me some other uses of the spectrum that I haven't mentioned there, just to give us an idea of how how vital it is. Gosh, well, there's everything from um, communication to submarines to uh, military communications, which I suppose submarines count as part of. Uh, We have uh, communication with boats. Um, When you're out at sea, you obviously need to know where other boats are. There's radars that help you with that and also with aircraft. Um, There are what we call point-to-point links, which connect one location to another location and transfer data between them. Um, uh, We use Spectrum actually to listen for um, extraterrestrial intelligence. There are specific frequencies assigned for that. Obviously, radio astronomy, listening to the stars. There's a very, very wide range of different uses of this uh, very valuable resource. And there's plenty of it. Do Do we easily use all of the Spectrum? No, we don't actually. Um, the, the the kind of extremes, the very low end of the spectrum, requires antennas which are measured in kilometres in length. So they're somewhat impractical for many purposes. And at the very, very upper end of the spectrum, the technology we need in order to access those pieces of spectrum is still in development. Um, and so although we're pushing the limits of, of the pieces that we can use, there are still limitations in how high in the, the radio spectrum we can go. And of course, what are the biggest problems when you've got two users that want to use the same bit of frequency? Absolutely. And and this is the big challenge. So, I mean, not all radio spectrum is the same. As you said yourself, Tim, you know, some frequencies go further. Some of them go uh, far shorter. And depending on what you want to do with the spectrum depends on which piece of it 
is the right piece to use for that application. So, you know, if we're looking to use uh, the spectrum to communicate with mobile devices, there are certain restrictions. You don't, we don't want one kilometer long antennas. We need something that's handheld, you know, but equally, we don't want a signal that travels halfway around the world. We want something that stays local. So there's a piece of spectrum that's ideal for that application. If we wanted to do broadcasting, radio broadcasting, for example, again, there's certain restrictions on what we can do. You know, again, we don't want super long antennas, but we do want a certain amount of coverage for our service. And whilst there's a range of frequencies which are good for broadcasting and a range of frequencies which are good for mobile services, for example, those two ranges overlap. And so this is where we hit the problem because we can't have both of them using the same frequency at the same time. Okay, well, who gets to decide who uses which bit of the spectrum? Well, so we start at the top. There is an organisation called the International Telecommunications Union. They are um, an agency of the United Nations based in Geneva. And they, every four years, have a conference that's attended by around 200 countries who sit down and decide at a global level which piece of spectrum should be used for which services so they will certainly if you can imagine global services such as aviation and shipping and satellites it makes sense if everybody uses the same so they will try and agree that um, they may come away with a piece of spectrum that says we could use it for broadcasting we could use it for mobile and the next level down is effectively the national regulator so in, in the uk that would be ofcom who then have to make the, if you like, uh, the policy decisions rather than the technical decisions about who gets to use a particular piece of the spectrum. Uh, that does sound uh, very simple the way you explain it, but there are a lot of actors in that, and that's just the regulators and a whole bunch of users, as we've already said. Uh, can it be quite chaotic? Well, it can. Funnily enough, Tim, I'm currently in Edinburgh for a meeting that's uh, part of the CEPT, which is a kind of pan-European body that looks at these issues. And they're looking at pieces of spectrum and it's used currently for, for the fixed point-to-point -point links I mentioned. It's used for satellites. There's a request to use it for mobile services. There's a request to use it for more Wi-Fi. So it's not an A versus B decision. It's A, B, C, D and a whole load of other people. And that's where it starts to get really complicated. And these discussions, I guess, can, can last for years and years and years. Well, they can. So, for example, the ITU process, the, um, the annual the, the meetings they hold, are once every four years. And in order to have a decision made at that meeting, it has to go on the agenda at the previous meeting. And studies have to be conducted in order to decide or to help people decide whether a new requirement could be met. So at that level, it could easily take eight years uh, to, to come up with an idea, come up with a, a suggestion, have that studied, and then have a decision made as to who should, at the international level, get that spectrum. And then there's the implementation of that. So yes, it can be a very, very slow process. Okay, well, all of those technologies, all of those uses you've mentioned and I've mentioned and so on, uh, it sounds as though there's almost a gold rush that could happen right now for grabbing hold of spectrum. Does it feel like that sometimes? It can feel like that sometimes. So... Um, Obviously, mobile phones in particular have been a technology which has come, I mean, originally in the 80s, but now something that is fairly ubiquitous. And we all love looking at our phones and that requires spectrum to connect to them. 
and there is increasing demand for spectrum for those purposes and you know there has almost been i i like the phrase gold rush um at the previous conference in 2019 um, quite a lot of spectrum was handed to the mobile industry for use for their mobile networks but as, as, as we've kind of discussed, Tim, the right piece of spectrum for a mobile network is, is, is limited. It's not, you know, you can't just plonk it anywhere and expect it to work. And there's some evidence that the large pieces of spectrum that were given over at that conference are now being found to be not as useful as maybe was expected for those services. And so, you know, really? yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and so people are sitting, if you like, or, or the mobile industry has, has garnered this spectrum for its use and so far has not actually gone ahead and used it so so that that is your your gold rush effectively isn't it that sounds exactly like that well listen thanks richard richard wormsley there who helps spectrum regulators do their job so let's now talk to uh somebody who's been involved with regulation for a long time peter stuckman he works for the european commission and he's devising the overall policies for awarding spectrum licenses across the 27 nations of the EU. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Tim. Oh, it's good to talk to you, but I have to say, it sounds like a heck of a job you've got, that those national regulators, apart from anyone else, will be jealous of their own powers and the, and the revenues that they can earn from auctioning Spectrum as well. How complicated is it for you? Indeed, we are involved in this uh, process that was just described, so whom to whom to give the Spectrum, but also to uh, define the conditions. So we call that harmonization. We try to do that uh, as, as far as possible to have the same conditions across the member states to uh, enable uh, things like economies of scale so that devices are uh, cheap enough um, or enable things like global roaming so that can use these services European wide, but also globally. Um, so this, of course, goes behind. So that's uh, as the spectrum is scarce. That's, of course, a challenge to balance these interests that were just described like broadcasting mobile satellite and member states because of the history they lack the legacy that we have but also some uh, preferences for the for the stakeholders that they they are um, um, they're present in the member states or have some some interests uh, this is of course um, uh, can be a challenge um, then the conditions for example are also uh, interesting to look at uh, for example the, define the duration you know, you can have these two extremes, like in the US, for example, um, durations are unlimited. So you can say that uh, operators are uh, more or less owning the spectrum, or you can go the way to be more flexible, to have more innovation um, and uh, have uh, unlicensed spectrum. So these kind of conditions are um, important to set. And this we try to harmonize across the 27 countries. How important is buying and selling spectrum uh, using the market system? Can you, can't you just let the market decide all of this? Well, to some extent, you could uh, do that. Uh, of course, what you need first is, is some investment certainty that uh, the, uh, the operators or the, the players that are using the spectrum have some certainty to invest. And um, looking at these amounts to, to roll out networks across uh, countries, uh, this is uh, billions of investments, so there you need some certainty. So uh, then, of course, you can, and this was mentioned before, cases where you have to take these bold decisions and uh, you, you're, of course, trying to predict the future. And there you need some flexibility for sharing 
uh, or even uh, the possibility to um, uh, selling the spectrum or um, leasing it, um, not to uh, have these decisions leading to situations where spectrum is underused. So the, there you have to strike this balance between some certainty, some competition, where you have some as a regulator is confident that the markets are delivering in terms of number of players in the market and you have a certain degree of competition while still allowing for investment certainty. So you've, you've got to design the auction process really quite carefully and presumably tweak it every now and then. Yes, auctions are um, designed today uh, by the member states. Um, so indeed, they are looking at the situation in the market and then the aim is to give it the spectrum to the players that make best use of it. Uh, in principle, where the, the, that value spectrum the most. And then also ensure certain market outcomes to, to know that, okay, the, the players have conditions that they can, can invest, um, meet some coverage obligations, but also have some um, dyn uh, competitive dy dynamics so that, for example, some new players are coming in when, for example, after a merger, where you need some more uh, competition in the market. Okay, so there's push and pull between users and between users and regulators. How much pressure do you come under? Um, well, we get, of course, pressure or have to um, balance interests both from the stakeholders, but also, as I mentioned before, the, the challenge um, by having uh, 27 member states. And here, um, of course, uh, we have the challenge that member states are uh, quite attached to their responsibilities because they, they have differences in the, in the legacy and the history and they don't want to use, lose control. Uh, we also talked about the term gold rush before. Of course, there's also some uh, interest by member states to, um, to get the auction revenues, which are quite, can be quite important. And here it's important that we have also rules or guidelines that, that make clear uh, what are the objectives of these auctions, that they're not only designed for um, making, maximizing revenues for the, for the, for the state um, budget, but rather um, looking into uh, creating economic activity and um, by that also getting very good returns for the member states in the mid to long term. So these are, of course, then um, pressures that we under, but um, as the member states are the ones that are responsible for the auctions, they of course also on, under pressure by the stakeholders and we are more um, trying to um, yeah, be in a position to harmonize and to consolidate the interests. You mentioned earlier on the need to predict, you know, what, what, will, what, will, what the demand will be for various services and what sort of services there might be available just down the line. Um, sometimes those predictions go wrong. I'm thinking perhaps about uh, the idea that we had that the 5G network would enable us to use the Internet of Things uh, so that our fridge can communicate with the supermarket and tell us that we're out of milk and so on. A prediction that kind of failed. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a very difficult process looking into that crystal ball, isn't it? Indeed, these decisions are often quite, quite bold. I mean, you, you're deciding these um, licenses often for more than 10 years or even more. Um, so um, there is maybe some risk involved. At one point, you have to take the decision based on all the information available. What technology can deliver? What um, are the predictions uh, on the market in terms of use? 
And of course, things are not perfect. So I wouldn't say that you should conclude too early to say one spectrum allocation is not delivering within a couple of years, and then you would call it a failure. Uh, I would rather say that you have to um, also factor in that there can be sometimes market readiness and technology readiness, and this could also then happen a bit later. So it's, it's uh, not not always um, uh, immediately that you're in the situation to to judge that uh, something will happen or not uh, after some experience. Of course, we have to, um, when we take the, the sweet spot spectrum, the, the most valuable uh, ones, uh, which are the low and mid band, there, of course, we have to uh, try to make things um, as, as certain as possible for the terms of use. And then you have to strike the balance and also make available some bands where you say, okay, there we maybe don't know. And we have to give the opportunity for innovation, for experimentation. And this you could then do in bands that are maybe not that critical, where you can try out things. And the uh, the millimeter wave band that was um, maybe uh, referred to before is a bit of a new frontier. And it's also not a spectrum which is needed for wide area coverage. So in that sense, it's probably reasonable to, to say, let's, let's try that out. Let's give the possibility um, to the market to see when the demand is coming and then have it have it available in the next few years. Yeah, the millimeter band, that's a very, very high frequency bit of the spectrum, isn't it? And it uh, doesn't go for great distance, but it can carry a lot of information. I've heard about people thinking about using it in factories to help control robots that wander the workspace and so on. But I wonder how jealous the guys with very deep pockets, the very rich companies, the mobile telephone companies, I wonder how jealous they are to grab all the spectrum. Do you have to attenuate that? Well, the, there's two dimensions here. Of course, they, they're interested to get um, as much spectrum as possible in order to uh, be ready to deploy the future services, um, to, to, uh, uh, to have this roadmap. Uh, but on the other hand, they're also a bit careful and not to say, let's, let's sell it all immediately because then they have to pay for it. And the, some member states are expecting revenues. So, they're always a bit uh, balanced there and say, okay, uh, we want to make these auctions when we when we need it. Uh, so I think this is balancing out itself a bit. Um, and then I think it's uh, it's it's also uh, then uh, important to see that the, this uh, sweet spot spectrum, which is really valuable, uh, there um, there are a lot of revenues or a lot of uh, license fees involved. While for the band that you just mentioned, when we go higher, which is more for hotspot, um, usually the amounts uh, in terms of auction fees are, are lower because it's more local spectrum. Um, so there we can be a bit more flexible. So let me get a prediction perhaps from both of you, actually. Um, we'll start off with you, Peter, and say, um, how fraught are the negotiations going to be over the next while? And what are going to be the principal um, sticking points, if you like, but also exciting opportunities. Peter. Yes, I think we're now um, in the situation where uh, the main 5G, so the, the current uh, new generation that is under deployment, uh, we have um, th um, low band, mid band and high band that is now available on the market. Um, so this is, of course, in a phase where we have to see how the usage will evolve, what are the future needs. In parallel, we're now working on 6G already, which will then be the next step change towards 2030, where we can expect then to mainstream 
this kind of Internet of Things uh, smart um, smart services that we just uh, uh, touched upon. Um, so this is uh, going in parallel because it can take some time to develop technology, to standardize, to then get the spectrum. So here we are also in the phase of ident identifying uh, new bands, uh, which at, at the global level, uh, which will be uh, relevant then in the next years to to do that. So it's in parallel, um, and there again then the the um, the challenge to uh, make a step forward towards European services uh, because we now. Uh, scaling up uh, these, these technologies and it will be important to have a coordinated approach when we uh, define these conditions so that these services are not developed only in some member states but also at a certain scale and also in the digital environment we need network effects that goes even further than economies of scale where it's important to to have the the size of the market. Richard what do you think are the opportunities out there and what are the potential roadblocks? We pointed out earlier the issue of timescales and the fact that it can take eight years from finding an application to getting some spectrum agreed. And I think that's one of the roadblocks because it's very difficult to look eight years ahead and understand what we need in eight years' time. And, and you know, Peter's right in a sense that what we need to do is be in a position that in, in that time period the spectrum is available if it's needed. But there is now competition. There is competition from, from space. There is competition from other areas. And I think, you know, we've always in the past gone down the road of giving or, or assigning or putting aside pieces of spectrum for specific users and for specific uses. And I think the challenge now is, is as, as Peter keeps saying, you know, there's a sweet spot. There's a piece that everybody wants. And I think the trick is now to understand how they can share that, how they can actually work together so that everybody who needs it, whether it's Wi-Fi or broadcasting or mobile or, or satellite or whoever it is, how they can actually share that spectrum effectively so that in that eight-year time period or whatever it might be, when somebody comes along and says, we need some of this, there's a way for them to get access to it that's not going to take another eight years. Richard Wormsley, splendid, and Peter Stuckman too. Bless both of you for chatting to us. Thanks very much. And I think we've got an idea now, haven't we, of why we need the airwaves around us regulated. And we're getting an idea of how difficult that is. And our next episode, we'll ask how we got here in the first place. After all, it's only about 130 years ago that we realised that there was such a thing as the electromagnetic spectrum. Join me, Tim Jenkins, again for Spectrum Policy 101, brought to you by Policy Tracker. If you'd like to find out more about policy issues relating to spectrum management, please take a look at Policy Tracker's training courses, newsletter, and research all of which is available on our website, policytracker.com.